0: There's this pregnant pause here at the beginning of the talk it's followed on the heels of the the fascinating performance of the teachers sitting down and <laughs> arranging themselves and you know the it's so intriguing the way they do that isn't it from from out there it's This rapt attention as we sit down. (laughs) We get so easily entertained (laughs) on retreat. (laughs) Kind of makes our job a little easier. (laughs) Hmm. I was just doing some walking meditation out in the, out behind us in the upper walking room, which I like to do sometimes if I have a chance before I'm gonna give a talk and walking meditation is the best if I had to choose I've said this before but I check it out periodically to see if I'm just saying it or if it's true but if I were told I had to pick a form of meditation I could do walking or sitting or something else I would choose walking I just was checking it out now, it's, it actually, that is true. (laughs) I'm not just trying to get you to do your walking meditation, although, actually I am trying to get you to do your walking (laughs) meditation, (laughs) but it's the best thing. Really? (laughs) Hmm. had a strange effect on my mind, though, to, to do it just now. So who knows what's going to come out tonight. Um, hmm. I guess probably by now most of you have noticed that we, we kind of have two big problems in meditation, a body and a mind. I mean it would be so much easier if we could eliminate those two things. And as Brian was saying in his talk the other night, the Buddha sort of tried to do that, (laughs) mortifying the flesh and crushing mind with mind in various ways. He discovered that didn't really work. But You know, we didn't get issued an extra bad misbehaving body and a weird mind when we came to the retreat. It's, it's the same one we had at home or wherever we were before we came here. But sometimes it seems like, you know, we just didn't think it was this bad. <laughs> and you know, the instructions that we're giving, I mean, there's nuances, but basically they're pretty simple. Pay attention and don't hold on. Versions of that that's that's what we're saying, so that's not too complicated or esoteric it's fairly simple and but then when we sit down to to do that, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge. <clears throat> you know we try just to just to s- stay with the movement of the breath for a few minutes and this restless body that won't behave, and this mind that either wanders off or falls asleep so much of the time. It be kind of disappointing. In one teaching, the Buddha made these uh, two uh, really simple Kind of profound statements, I'm sure most of you, many of you at least, have heard these. This was in, in a discourse in the collection called the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, luminous is this mind, but it is obscured by adventitious defilements. And a second statement, luminous is this mind, and it is freed from adventitious defilements. And this word, adventitious, that certainly I don't use very often, it means um, visiting, or a thing that is not an inherent part of something, not intrinsic to. So visiting is a, you could just substitute that word, visiting energies. And so both of these statements begin with this, this word luminous as a descriptor for the quality of the mind. And we might, uh, you know, debate what the Buddha meant in choosing this word luminous, and perhaps it could have been translated some other way, the Pali word. But we can get a sense of what he might have been pointing to when we look at the, the rest of these two statements in the second part of them. So in the first one, the luminosity of the mind is obscured by, covered over by these visiting energies, and in the second one, it's freed from those same energies, or in this case, or uh, word defilements. And in either case, it starts out, luminous as the mind. So this inherent clarity, you could say, or purity, it's, it's the same. It's not changed by these visiting energies not in any way uh, if affected by them other than, than the clouding or covering over that's there in, at times. And, and we could see these energies, these visiting forces uh, man- as manifestations that are, of what are sometimes called the three roots of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. And in Pali, there's a word kilesa, It's used as a catch-all for these energies. And it usually is translated as defilement, as in the the quotation the way I read it. Obscured by visiting defilements, freed from defilements. And I think we have to be really careful uh, with this translation of kilesa as defilement. I actually prefer to use the word kilesa because uh, defilement sounds pretty bad pretty strong. And, you know, if we look and they're there a lot, we're just this walking bucket of defilements and <laughs> it doesn't look too good. We don't really want to think of ourselves <laughs> in that way. And I think it's not actually that useful because it has such a negative connotation there. And I think it's important to remember that these energies are not wrong or bad or evil. They, that's, not, well, that's not true. They, they are a, re- a reflection, you could say, of the untrained minds' uh, attempts to deal with the truths of change and unreliability, fragility, uncontrollability, to deal with anicca, dukkha, and anatta. These energies are actually trying to help us. They're just a little confused about what might actually be helpful. But they're not evil or wrong or bad. And these energies show up in, in different ways. You can see they have different flavors or manifestations. They're the mind wanting or not wanting, desire and aversion and agitation and restlessness and confusion and dullness. And it's important that we remind ourselves that as the Buddha said, they are visiting energies. They are not an inherent part of of the mind or heart. They're not intrinsic to the mind or heart. And even though they may show up often, and they do obscure the luminosity of the mind, they obscure that clarity at times. We lose sight of it. But they don't change the nature of the mind. It's like clouds that may come across the sky. The sky isn't gone. The clear sky is not gone, but it's it's covered over for that time. The essential nature is always there. And so part of what we're doing in this practice, really what we're doing, is we're uncovering that hidden clarity or hidden goodness or wisdom or um, rediscovering for ourselves this intrinsic inherent purity of mind and heart. Revealing our innate natural wisdom. Different ways we might speak about this. And there are times in this practice where we may touch that, the direct touching of this pure, empty, aware nature of the mind, this essential quality that is already free. And even though we lose sight of it, it's obscured again maybe, it doesn't negate the reality of that. And these forces that obscure that clarity, they're, they're deeply conditioned, rooted habits of mind. They're woven into the fabric of our perception. And perhaps they're lifetimes old. And we see how this can operate in our lives at times when you know, we'll find ourselves getting hooked in some habitual pattern. And it feels like we've seen through it from every possible angle, and it just, it still keeps arising. One of my uh, colleagues, teachers and colleagues, calls calls these really deep old patterns karmic knots. They really stick around and they're difficult to navigate. And they catch us, they're like bait on a hook that we're going to bite. And we watch ourselves going up and, here I go, I'm going to bite it. Not so long ago, I was on a, a retreat and, and I was uh, caught a vulnerable period where I was really caught by an old, old, old deep pattern. And I remember telling myself at the time, you know, Greg, this isn't the last time you're going to feel this way. And it wasn't um, a defeated, it wasn't a place of resignation or defeat at all. It was a deep kindness. It was actually a wisdom there. And a deep kindness said, you know, this is gonna stick around. And my freedom isn't dependent on it not ever arising again. That kindness there. And so much comes up that we find difficult and unacceptable. Our fears and desires and worries and self-judgments. It's not the only thing, and at times it can seem endless. Sure, we have times where we may touch this purity of mind and times when there is joy and ease, and calm. These beautiful qualities are there too, but so much of the time it's, it's difficult and it can seem kind of endless, and we wonder: is this really worth it? Is is anything changing? There's a story about the the famous Tibetan teacher uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and, and the story goes back to many years ago. And he was teaching; he was going to be teaching a leading an evening, giving a talk, something in uh, in Berkeley, California, I believe. this story comes from. And he he had a habit of showing up quite late to uh, these kinds of events. And so a lot of people had come full house. They paid quite a bit of money to be there. And he showed up eventually and he he came in and said, uh, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin it's difficult, it's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. <laughs> and you know, there sometimes it feels like this. <laughs> it's just another insult <laughs> to that ego. And so we have to bring so much patience and kindness and this gentle perseverance So much compassion. Because it takes a while to learn to relate to our own mind and heart in a skillful way. (coughs) We're learning, and we do learn over time, that we don't have to take these presence, the presence of these visiting kilesas, these energies, personally. We can stop judging them as bad or wrong, let go of judging ourselves as bad or wrong, or having them as though somehow that's our fault. We see that they arise, they're an aspect of nature. They arise out of conditions. They're just doing their job. Desire's job is to want. Aversion's job is to hate. Illusions' job is to be confused. They're really good at it. They're doing it. They arise from conditions. They pass away when those conditions change. And so changing how we relate to them opens the door to transformation and the possibility of freedom. The Buddha described five uh, main ways that these unwholesome roots uh, arise frequently. They manifest... Pali, uh, they're called the nivaranas. Uh, that word literally means something like clouding or covering, obscuring. That word nivarana is usually translated as hindrance, again in the same way as translating kilesa as defilement. I think we need to be a bit careful with that. They're hindrance, if we relate to them unwisely. But they're not. They're, they're, uh, they're in the Satipatthana Sutta as, a, uh, as objects for meditation. They're not inherently bad or wrong, but they do show up. They're difficult to be with. They do obscure cloud, cover over this luminous mind, the purity and clarity there. And one teaching the Buddha said that when we attend to them carelessly, these Nivaranas are makers of blindness, causing lack of vision, causing lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, and leading away from Nibbana. He said when we attend to them carelessly. If we attend to them carefully, wisely, we bring awareness, we shine the light of awareness on them, then they're transformed. They're, they become uh, objects of meditation, vehicles for understanding. We start to see that they're conditioned arisings, that they will pass away when conditions change. We're no longer ha- in, in falling into delusion in regard to them. They're not, they lose their power over the mind and heart. So these uh, hindrances, these nivaranas, are desire for sense pleasures, mind wanting, pleasant sense contacts, aversion or ill will, mind wanting to avoid or get rid of something that we find unpleasant, restlessness and worry, Sloth and torpor and doubt, or skeptical doubt, I could say. And there are some images in one of the texts that I, I actually think are quite uh, useful that kind of illustrate how they, how they function in this uh, clouding of the mind. And in this uh, image, in these images, uh, it's um, the image of using a pool of water, perhaps a bowl or a, a pool, of water um, as a reflective device, as a mirror. So we want to be able to see a reflection in there. And the image then for uh, Desire for Sense Pleasures is said to be um, as, as like uh, putting colored dye into the water. And so uh, we can't see the reflection because the water is, is mixed with these colors. and. Um, the a sense of fascination with the color there. So we don't see the clarity of the water is uh, affected by that. Aversion or ill will is, is likened to uh, water which has been heated on a fire till it's boiling. And the boiling, agitated surface, uh, there's no chance for clarity in that. It's, it's too hot, agitated by the heat of anger, of ill will, of aversion. Sloth and torpor are likened to water that is covered with uh, algae or muck or scum, pond scum. And there's this thick matted growth and we can't see uh, the reflection there because of that. Um, You can almost think of it as though trying to swim through that when it's thick. It's hard to move through and very hard to see with any clarity. Restlessness or restlessness and worry is likened to uh, the water being whipped up by strong winds, like the winds we had today, and the surface gets very choppy and, and uh, the clarity is gone. You can't see clearly in that. There's no reflection. And doubt is said to be like water in which mud has been stirred up. So it's clouded by, by the mud that's stirred up from the bottom of the pond or from the bottom of the bowl. And you can't see the reflection because the muddiness there. And in these images, the the water, the nature of the water, that essential clarity there isn't changed by these conditions. They're conditions that have come. And so uh, the dye or the mud can settle out. It'll settle out if the water is allowed to sit quietly. Or you could filter it out, perhaps. And the the scum or muck on the surface could be skimmed off the top. If we take away the heat of aversion, the water will cool down and become calm and still. If the wind settles down, the winds of agitation, restlessness, then the water becomes calm and the reflection is there, the clarity returns. So if we think of this teaching of the Buddha uh, around attending to these energies carefully or wisely, one of the things that we might check out or or look into are are the conditions that give rise to them. We might talk about this in different ways. But um, there's a kind of a primary or fundamental cause which he pointed to directly in that statement is unwise attention or careless attention to some aspect of our experience, perhaps primarily unwise or careless attention to our thoughts, the content of our thoughts. And this is really clear when we consider the first two of sensual desire and aversion or ill will. And these, I'm talking, going to talk about them together because they're closely related in that the energy of the wanting mind is present in both with both of them. With sensual desire, this uh, wanting mind is turned towards an object or an experience in which There's this imagined sense of of fulfillment if we get the thing, if we have the experience or get the object of our desire. And with aversion or ill-will, the wanting is turned towards wanting to not have something or to get rid of something or to avoid something. So it's that same uh, quality of the wanting but uh, turned in these different uh, directions, you could say, or uh, related to different (coughs) qualities that are there. And so in the first case, there's contact somewhere, body or mind, with something generally that we would say is pleasant. Pleasant feeling tone, as we were talking about the other day in, in the instructions, or pointing to uh, the uh, feeling tone of Vedana as an object for our, our uh, contemplation and meditation. So. That, that contact is there, the feeling tone is there, perhaps not seen, perhaps seen, but there's a, a liking, a movement towards it. Nothing wrong with that. Natural, normal, pleasant experiences are good. And we do have some very strong conditioning, as I was saying the other morning, around our relationship to... Experiences that are um, exp- that that are experienced, things that are experienced as pleasant, easily leads to the mind moving towards wanting to grasp, hold on, cling to. And when there's no mindfulness, we don't see this. This is attending unwisely, attending carelessly. It tends to create this this movement of mind that says. Oh, if only I can have this. If I get this thing, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be happy. Whatever it is. And the list is endless because that energy isn't ever satisfied for very long. So It could be anything. And this energy keeps us from being actually present with the moment because we get fixated, fixated externally on this um, object or thing that we imagine will make us feel happy or complete. We'll be okay. And we're incomplete now. This moment is not good enough, but if we get the thing, yes, it'll be good. When the contact or experience has an unpleasant feeling tone, then it tends to condition it's not seen, especially there's not mindfulness there. It tends to condition some sort of resistance or aversion, ill will, anger, or fear. It attempts to either get rid of or get away from it can focus um, on wanting something we want to get, or something we want to get rid of. In either case, this energy of wanting. It's, it, it functions like a, a liar and a thief. It lies to us with false promises that this thing that we, either we get it or we get rid of it, that it is going to do the trick, that we will be happy forever from now on. And it's, it's a thief in that it steals from that moment any chance for um, contentment. Here and now, it steals that from us. But we get so fascinated with the object of our wanting and we, we often will, will overlook, we overlook the energetic manifestation of this quality of wanting because uh, we're focused outwardly, as I was saying, we're fixated on the object of the desire. It seems so promising. We really will be happy. So obvious. We get the thing. We don't notice how, what that energy of the wanting. We don't notice that direct experience and how actually um, painful it is. we, We overlook that part of it. But when it when it ceases, it's a really great relief. And I, I think of this. I've seen this in myself, where I'll. you know, get into this kind of shopping mind. Certain kinds of things. (laughs) You know, like what? I don't know. Say, cool gear to wear when I'm bike, riding my bike, or something like that, you know, and I'll be just looking for something to want. You know, looking this mind focused out on this stuff, and it, you know, it's like, put the Close the computer or put it away and say, ah, oh, let go of that, that wanting. It can be focused on anything like that. And so what we overlook often is that the, the relief or pleasure or gratification when we get the thing is much more related to the relief of the wanting <laughs> than it is from the object. Because how, you know, the object, it's not very long before we want another, we want something else, whatever. It doesn't actually satisfy the, it doesn't address that energy for very long. But the relief of that energy, that's what's really, that's what feels good in that moment. So whether this wanting mind is manifesting as desire for sensual Gratification or pleasures, or whether it's wanting to get rid of and avoid feeling something. Uh, the key to to it is this shining of the light of awareness. So it's this paying attention to it uh, carefully, to attend to it wisely and carefully, and recognizing it, naming it. Brian was talking about this this morning. This uh, ability to recognize and name the experiences. Just that gives us the space. It completely shifts things, at least in a certain, to some extent. Immediately there's a, the chance that we can see what's really going on. We might have a choice in how we can relate to it. it can br- it'll break the spell of the fascination there and the outward focus. If we don't see it, there's not much choice. So actually being able to name it, say, ah, oh, this is here, this has arisen in me we start to uh, learn that we can meet the energy at that point, just as, oh, it's wanting. We sit with this energy of desire, of lust, of ill will, of resistance. We feel how it manifests, how it is in the body. Brian was suggesting come and feel it in the body, a great way to drop out of the the, uh, fascination with it. We don't have to act on it. We don't have to run away or try to fix things so we don't feel them. And if we can let go of struggle with them and come into a, a, a more uh, kind and wise relationship there, we'll see that they arise and pass away on their own. They start to unbind and relax by themselves. We can let their empty, impermanent nature um, really manifest and the release that comes through that process. <clears throat> so the first two there they're of uh, <coughs> sensual desire and aversion, real will. And the third hindrance is a sloth and torpor. Someone was, was Brian talking about the sloth, the animal? Someone was, Jill, last night. And, you know, there's this animal and these, these ideas, I think Jill uh, may have used these definitions. Did you use the definitions from the dictionary, maybe? Um, sloth is a definition uh, for sloth is a disinclination to work or exert oneself, indolence or laziness, and torpor is a state of being dormant or inactive, a temporary loss of all or part of the power of sensation or motion. sluggishness or stupor. Uh, It's really, it's great. I mean, I've had the torpor part. Like, it's so intense sometimes. It's like I have felt as though if my life depended on it, I could not get my eyes to open. You know, it's like I would have to do this. They're just, you know, this stupor or temporary loss of all or part of the power of sensation or emotion. I mean, I don't know, am I alone in this? <laughs> Is anyone else? I mean, sometimes it's like, wow, I will, I, you know, I'll die before <laughs> I can get my eyes to, you know, uh, just <laughs> <trying>. <laughs> They won't do it. So, it manifests as some form of sleepiness or dullness, or sometimes it's the lazy or stubborn, or this indolence kind of um, another aspect of it where we just don't want to do it. It's too hard. Can't do it. And and as I said, when it's really strong, this torpor, this stupor side of it can show up. And it's. There kind of there are three causes that tend to lead to the rising of this with quality this mental. I don't know if energy is a good word for it. Mental lack of energy. It's a kind of energetic thing. It's a, a mental state there. So sometimes we actually are tired, and there's sleepiness that's born of tiredness. And this, I think, mo- most of us uh, often see this at the start of a retreat, and. Um, you know, we often don't realize how exhausting our lives are. And we, run, we can run on momentum for a long time. And then when we cut that momentum, often it's like we just, there's this exhaustion from that. And, when, uh, and so um, sometimes we, we actually need to come back into some balance and, and we need to rest the body and the mind. Uh, It can also show up, these qualities can also show up as a kind of um, uh, sort of resistance to something that's difficult, difficulty in the mind or the body, some experience that we don't want to feel or don't have the energy to be with, and so the mind will kind of shut down to avoid that difficult emotion or um, something. We may not see what it is, but the mind can kind of zone out or go into a sleepy kind of state to avoid it like you know withdrawing from what's difficult And sometimes sometimes it can fool us in this because we can we can say, tell ourselves that we're just we just need to take care of ourselves and it can kind of masquerade as a compassion there as the mind withdraws from what's difficult. And a third cause is um, an imbalance of, uh, energy and concentration and in this case the, the dullness can arise kind of gradually and it can be really pleasant and wholesome there can be a lot of good qualities It can be a lot of calm the mind getting concentrated, collected tranquility can be very strong and, and then um, you know I've had the experience sitting where it's like oh everything's just coming together, enlightenment, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it's like you get lulled into this because it's so nice and everything's so calm and then it just goes down. And and there's not enough energy to, to balance that, those tranquilizing factors, and so it shades off into this... Um, what we often call sinking mind, where the mind sinks into a dull state because of that imbalance. And sometimes we can catch it when it's first arising and, and, uh, and actually, you know, note and name it and, and actually turn towards it and even though it may get s- strong, we can actually maintain some mindfulness there with it. And also that, that um, investigation, which uh, the, the energetic turning towards it can sometimes bring the energy up and shift it that way. Um, if it's this kind of sinking mind, often by the time we notice it, for me, uh, it's too late uh, for that. Um, but sometimes we can kind of ride that edge <laughs> Right, right, that edge and it'll shift back to a little more energy. But we can name it, uh, bring some interest in investigation there. What, what is it actually, what's really going on? What is the experience? How, what does it really feel like in the body? What is the, the quality of the mind when this is, is manifesting? So we can, if we can bring some interest, it can, it can shift it. But um, often, by the time we notice it, We don't have the wherewithal to to turn to it in that way, and we might need uh, some other, uh, take some other steps, stronger measures. We can um, straighten up the posture, take some deeper breaths. Uh, We can stand up or open the eyes. Uh, Turning towards light, the perception of light is said to dispel this quality. Um, If we do stand up, you know, we're not so likely to fall asleep, although in the standing posture, although it's not unheard of. Um, yeah, it's, it can happen <laughs> in our <laughs> direct experience. Um, there's a classic remedy which is said to um, pinch and pull the earlobes. Um, you know, on these Buddhist statues, he has these. Really long earlobes, often sometimes they're actually down and touching the the shoulders, and it, it's possible that he had a lot of um, sloth and torpor, and <laughs> and uh, worked his earlobes. So we're we're in good company if if we have this. Um, we could you know take a fast walk, get some fresh air, um, splash cold water on the face when we uh, get up, and um, you know it's worth trying some of these things as long as we're approaching it in a in in a balanced way, and and graceful surrender as a last resort, or maybe not even the last resort, because sooner or later um, the energy will shift. And it's so interesting, maybe some of you have seen this, there'll be a shift in just one mind moment from this dullness to to clarity. Have you seen that happen sometimes? Where the mind will just shift like that. And a lot of the wholesome qualities of calm, especially perhaps if it's uh, an imbalance of tranquility and, and energy, a lot of the wholesome qualities will be there. And sometimes it's, a, it's, it's really um, incredible to see how, how that will shift, just some, some thing that uh, triggers that, that shift there. And so I've, I guess in a way you could say my hindrance of choice is sloth and torpor. I've had a lot of it, I'm, I still do. And uh, I'm not the king of sloth and torpor, but I am the prince or duke. (laughs) And um, for a long time, I just hated it, and I would fight against it and struggle. And at a certain point, I realized that I was um, cultivating aversion. Well, that was one approach. The other one was to I try to get some fantasy going to try to wake my mind up, you know. And neither of those are really great. (laughs) strategies you know if we're cultivating aversion it might raise the energy but we're going to get tight and it's not really um, not recommended as a strategy it doesn't actually do the trick and and if we're um, yeah trying to use some fantasy it it also isn't going to actually address uh, the relationship then we'll just be cultivating desire um, for something or sense pleasure. So um, I noticed I was doing those two things. And so I, I have moved more towards the graceful surrender end of things. Mm. So I'm gonna move on here. So the, the fourth of these nivaranas is uh, restlessness or restlessness and worry and uh there's it shows up in different ways, in different patterns that happen. It can show up in the mind, it can show up in the body uh, either or or both um, there's there's excessive energy in some way, and there's not enough calm or tranquility or concentration to hold in, and it spills out and um in the, in the image from the, those, the water as a mirror and it's likened to wind getting whipped up. So the, the, there's an energy, uh, an agitated, swirling energy uh, can show up in the mind. Um, and this can be interesting because the body can be very still and calm sometimes. And yet a lot of this energy, mental energy, can show up. I've had that experience and um, I call them thought festivals it shows up as a lot of thinking and sometimes it can be kind of obsessive patterns of thought that are related to memories of uh, things that, uh, unskillful things or regrets or uh, reflecting on things that, that happened that we did or that happened that um, caused pain and, and the mind t- just turning it over and over and, and really unable to let it go. Uh, sometimes it can be a flood of of ideas and the energy can show up just as a as a really interesting uh creative ideas um, but it's this it, it's it's too extreme and and there's not enough calm to hold it it can show up in the body and not so much in the mind often it's both maybe most often but sometimes it's just in the body and the mind can be fairly uh, calm, but the body is filled with an energy that can v- get very intense, intense. Sometimes it feels like we're gonna uh, explode if we don't move. So <coughs> the, the first thing to do within, uh, with all of these uh, mental energies is to recognize them and some acknowledgement or acceptance that this has arisen to name it, open to it with interest, if we can turn this quality of investigation or interest towards it. Perhaps using the the RAIN acronym that that Brian mentioned this morning, it was uh, uh, teacher Michelle McDonald came up with that. (coughs) Recognition, I actually came up with, with RAIN once, three of each. So we relax, receive, recognize, and bring interest, investigation leading to intimacy. Oh, that's I, A. <laughs> Awareness leading to uh, this acknowledgement and then acceptance, investigation, interest, intimacy. What's the N? Mm, um, do you remember my N? Yeah. Um, no, no. It's non-identification. I know, but I had some other ones. Nature, non-identification, Nature, non-identification no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So we may find some. Some of that can be useful. This way that we can uh, find a wise and skillful way. Uh, that we can bring our awareness and, and our mindfulness and, and uh, to it and um, seeing how it's showing up in the body and the mind. Um, really helpful to name, oh, restlessness. It feels like that. That's what this is. And if it's really strong and we're struggling with it, we can try uh, to consciously relax the body. Again, some deeper breaths, uh, similar to with the sloth and torpor can shift things. We could shift the posture. We could stand up. Opening the eyes can shift the fixation on on, um, uh, obsessive thought patterns if that's happening there. Um, And if we're careful, sometimes it can be uh, useful to um, try to rein the mind in by um, turning towards a particular object um, and sustaining the attention there, perhaps with the breath. But we have to be careful because sometimes that effort will just wind it up tighter. But sometimes it actually does work as long as we're just just one breath in, one breath out, something very simple, and, and do it in a very relaxed way where we're, we're trying to do it, but we don't care if we're not successful. And as Brian suggested this morning, a really great um, uh, strategy is to uh, make the, the mind... space of the mind large, sometimes just sort of visualizing it uh, being larger, opening the eyes to get a sense of space um, so that the energy is not filling the whole space of the mind because uh, it's like a wild horse kicking in a stall, but if you let it in a pasture and it can have some space, So we let the restlessness arise within a larger space so it's not uh, making up our whole world. So the fifth uh, uh, of these Nivaranas is skeptical doubt. And it's, um, I want to differentiate it from a kind of doubt that's actually uh, useful and, and is very highly prized in this tradition. And, and there's a kind of doubt that you could say is the opposite of, of blind belief or blind faith. Um, the Buddha spoke to this very clearly in, in some teachings. There's a famous teaching of the Kalama Sutta where he's uh, talking to uh, group of people, the Kalamas, uh, people who lived in this one area. And and they said, you know, you show up and you sound good and look good. And another teacher comes and they seem to be professing some wise teachings. And how do we know, um, you know, who to follow? And the Buddha said, you should not believe uh, anyone. Don't believe me just because I, I have a good reputation and no teachings. And um, well spoken of, and I'm paraphrasing this quite a lot, but you went through things don't you should put what is being offered into practice for yourself and see does this lead uh, in the direction of freedom and ease or does it lead to does it not lead that way? Does it lead to suffering? so we we actually want to check it out. So doubt or or in this regard, uh, the doubt that says, "Let me see for myself." is um, very useful because we're actually willing to engage. And yeah, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna check it out. But the hindrance of doubt or the, the, the doubt in this other um, way has different tone because there's not, um, there's not a willingness to actually engage. It actually uh, is more of a paralyzing energy where we get stopped and we, we write things off. It's not worth doing. Um, we we get stuck in in a place of uncertainty and perplexity and indecision, you know, um, where we're not actually willing to even check it out. We're like standing where there's a uh, paths going in different directions or a crossroads, and we we just don't decide to even check any of them out. We just stay there in a state of uh, kind of frozen state, and. Uh, you know, it's the, when it's really strong, it's this indecision that really does kind of paralyze and, and it can stop the practice. And But it can be difficult to recognize because it often comes disguised as the voice of wisdom that is telling us the deepest truth and that this is the wrong practice and the teachers don't know what they're talking about, which may be true once in a while. We need to check that out. But it, you know, and that, that actually... Um, we should be doing Dzogchen, or Sufi dancing. And both of those are fine practices, Um, not to belittle them, but it'll convince us that that of things, it comes disguised as the voice of wisdom, in a way that we don't actually engage and we don't check out and see. Um, So really, really important to um, recognize and name this, because it's um, there's times when it can really get a toehold and and really um, stop us in our tracks for a while. So naming this is doubt. Doubt has arisen. Sometimes if we can uh, bring the the um, bring the awareness out of what the doubt is telling us and come back to something tangible like feeling the body, feeling the body resting on the ground, or feeling the body moving and walking that the tangibility of that doubt has a, maybe a harder time getting a toehold there because, you know, we can say, well, I don't know, but I can feel the body sitting. I can feel my hands touching, feel my feet on the ground, and, and there's not room for doubt there. Or sometimes I have found reflecting on something like the truth of impermanence can shift the, this energy. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Um, there's it's hard for doubt to um you know convince us that that isn't true you know we it doesn't get get way to 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 affect that so I have found sometimes a uh, simple reflection like that can actually really shift that energy um, so turning to it with some uh care and uh Joseph, I think Joseph used to suggest someone, I think it was Joseph Goldstein, he said that he liked to, um, with, with all the hindrances, maybe especially with doubt, he would um, use this image from the teachings where these energies are personified uh, in the form of uh, a being, a deity named Mara, and um, who would try to, you know, would see when the monk or the nun was in a kind of weak place and would come in and say, you know, you really, you really should come and don't stay there sitting. Come, let's go live it up. And um, in, all, in all these stories, the, the person who's, who Mara is trying to tempt off their seat will say, I see you, Mara. And whenever Mara is seen, loses uh, power and, and slinks off with his tail between his legs. And so um, sometimes we can actually say, I see you. I see you, doubt." And it can uh, shift the energy, bring some lightness to it, and also, uh, yeah, it can really change a uh, relationship there. Oh, I see you. And we do it, I think, I, I like to do it with a kind voice. So this quality of awareness and this careful attention is the key to uh, working with these energies in any of the ways that they show up um, without this, Without this ability to recognize and see them, uh, there's not much we can do, but they do pass. But mindfulness has this ability to transform what is apparently an obstacle to meditation into an object of meditation. And so uh, they, they become the vehicle for understanding, for insight. So they're, they're hindrances in one way and they're, they're the vehicle for liberation in another way. And sometimes we can turn to them, turn to the, the, the hindrances, turn to the kilesas with some kindness and care, reflecting on the fact that um, they're trying, they actually are trying to help us. I, lately I've been saying hello to them. I say hello, <coughs> hello little aversion. I say little aversion because it's endearing, more endearing. Somehow that's really working for me lately. I say hello to them and then they, they usually just go away. I say hello to Joy too, hello little Joy, and it goes away too. <laughs> and it's, it's fine, it's gonna go away sooner or later. <laughs> you can try this, it really, it's working for me these days. So I, I'm very friendly with them. I say hello to them. Sometimes I thank them for trying to help me, suggest that we might try a different strategy, but I invite them to come along with me while we try a different approach so that they don't feel that I'm gonna be mean to them. And they, they really respond very well to that <laughs> kindness. So developing a, a, a wise and kind relationship with these uh, mind states, it really goes to the heart of the practice. And, and through this process, we actually start to reveal um, the, this, the, the pure luminous nature of mind that I began with those quotations that the Buddha was pointing to. We see, oh, that's always been there. It's always there. We don't have to worry as much as we're worrying. So I'll, I'll end with a few words uh, from Ajahn Chah. About this mind, in truth there is nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure, and within itself it is already peaceful. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it, sense impressions come and trick it into happiness or suffering, gladness and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. And so we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. We'll have just a a minute of quiet and then I'll ring the bell.